Welcome to Great Comedic Minds by Kara Robertson, a podcast where we meet some of the greatest comedic creators of our time and find out their real stories. From your favorite TV shows, movies, and live stand-up, we interview the storytellers and joke writers who have entertained us for years to find out exactly how and why they do it. And now, here's your host, Kara Robinson. I'm here with Bill Oakley. Bill Oakley is a Portland-based television writer and executive producer. He and his writing partner, Josh Weinstein, are well-known for their work on the hit TV show, The Simpsons. The pair also created the show, Mission Hill, and a consulting producers on Futurama. Bill wrote for The Cleveland Show, Regular Show, and the Netflix animation Close Enough. He's won three Emmys and a Writers Guild of America Award for Best Comedy Variety Talk Series. Bill also wrote what is, in my opinion, the best piece of comedy in history, the infamous steamed ham sketch that was featured in Season 7 episode of The Simpsons, 22 short films about Springfield. Uh, excitingly, Bill Oakley has been officially titled as a fast food expert and is appearing on the History Channel show, The Food That Built America. Uh, thank you very much for coming today, Bill. Really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you were raised on a, a farm in Maryland, is that correct? Yes, although it wasn't really so much of a farm. It didn't, wasn't really an operating farm. It had some cows and some horses, but that was about it. Oh, okay. It's so like a hobby farm? It was just the buildings, there were farm buildings, but we didn't have a lot of, you know, animals and crops and stuff. Okay. What was it like? Um, it was empty. It was very rural. It was a place, it was, you know, the nearest person was another mile away. Uh, the nearest town was a couple miles away. Um, it was different. It was also a very different time because it was like the seventies. And so there was no internet, there was no cell phone. There was just there's TV that had three channels on it um, and not much else. And not, you know, and you had to make your own fun, I guess I would say. Do you have siblings? Yes, I did, but they were much older. So by the time I was six, they were had both gone. So you went to then St. Albans schools. I've had a look at people who went to that school and there's a lot of uh, near Washington Congress people, astronauts, that sort of yeah. thing. What was that school like? It, you know, in retrospect, it was a fancy school. It was, um, it, the education was terrific. The people there were dicks. Most of the people there, a lot of the people in my class were big, were jerks and are jerks now, are famous jerks now. Like, you know, the kind of people that like, one of the most obnoxious senators in the U.S. was in the class above me. He was a huge jerk in school and from what i gather he's a huge jerk now so you know people i i would say but i mean there was a certain segment of the class that i got along with very well including josh weinstein who i'm sure you're going to be talking about in a second um but i mean in general like you know it's a kind of it's a washington dc prep school um filled with you know the guys sons of rich people and and powerful people and so there was a lot of i mean i would say i had a fairly good time uh considering all that uh and like it was it was fun definitely i would say the fun not the so much the school but the social life of the time of the 80s was really fun because nobody cared what kids were doing so you could do whatever you know this is before cell phones you could just run amok and your parent you'd leave your parents would say hey have fun and then you'd go out and they you wouldn't see that they wouldn't know where you went or what you were doing oh you know until you came home and there was no way for them to contact you it was a as a, as a kid during that time, it was really fun. 
It's often uh, one of my complaints that humans have been around 300,000 years that for some reason we're the first generation that actually has to supervise our children. Yeah, I yeah. get you. I have children, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So how old were you when you met Josh? 14. 14. Josh came to the school in ninth grade. And you became best friends? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We did. We both had, we had similar senses of humor. We had similar interests. Um, and we, uh, we, just kind of, we just kind of became friends very quickly. We started working on the school newspaper together and hanging out together a lot. Um, yeah, it, and uh, it, he was a great he was a great addition to the school that we were lacking another person <laughs> that had a, that had similar interests to me. And uh, I'm, I was so happy when he arrived and met him in ninth grade, and we became friends and have been uh, great friends for I don't know how long now forty years, forty two years. Were you funny at school? You know, I'm not funny now. <laughs> like the funny funny is. I'm not like Conan, you know, there's performing funny and then there's writing funny, writing and thinking funny. Like I didn't perform. I, and I don't perform now, although I do somewhat on my Instagram. Um, I am, I can write funny and I think funny and I appreciate funny stuff. I have, you know, my Python records and, you know, old videotapes of green acres, things like that. But I didn't, um, I wouldn't say people would, people might think I was odd, but they didn't think I was funny because I didn't, come off like coin and was not a poor comedian so then you went to harvard and and josh went mm-hmm. to stanford so you separated what did you do at harvard i worked mainly on the lampoon i didn't get into stanford i wanted to go to stanford with josh i didn't get in oh. um and so harvard of course uh i did get into harvard and i wanted to go there because of the lampoon uh the harvard lampoon for people who don't know is the world's old now the world's oldest humor magazine uh formed uh, founded 1876 and it is um, it's responsible for National Lampoon, which was was a spinoff of the Harvard Lampoon in the 70s, which was an incredibly successful magazine in the 70s and 80s, made a lot of famous movies like National Lampoon's Animal House, Vacation, things like that, until it basically kind of felt, went under about 10 years ago. Um, anyway, the Lampoon at Harvard is a very special organization because it not only does it publish the magazine, but it also has this building, which is a castle, which is a, basically a castle. It's called the castle. It's a small castle in Harvard Square. And so there's also a social club kind of aspect to it, which is really fun. Um, and fortunately, I got on to the Lampoon my first semester freshman year. So I really didn't do almost anything else. Um, and I managed, I managed to get decent grades while basically doing nothing else but hanging out at the Lampoon my entire career. And Josh came during the summers, we would do projects. We would do, you know, parodies of... Uh, books or newspapers or things like that and josh would come visit uh and so we'd hung, we'd hung, hang out and work together on those things so once you finished that you then um went on to get your first job how did you do that we didn't have any writing jobs for a while like we first we had other jobs like josh got a job writing in an advertising we went back to our hometown of washington dc Josh got a job working at like a, a some sort of low level job writing for an advertising agency, writing like recruiting ads for um, government agencies. And I got a job working at the TV show America's Most Wanted um, and writing and doing publicity for them, which was a really fun job. Um, and, but we still wanted to write comedy. So basically, anytime we heard about something through the grapevine and through our mainly through our friends from college, they're looking for so and so writers for this show. And so finally, we wrote there was a comedy game show that was starting up in New York. And we got uh, somebody told us they were looking for samples. So we wrote up funny comedy questions uh, and they, they liked it and they hired us. And we moved to New York uh, to work on this show. Um, 
the show was very fun. It was, I think it was probably over after about six months. And then we worked on another similar show from the same people. And then um, that resulted in finally us, we met enough people, we got hired to work on a show in LA. And so this was uh, about three years after college. We got to work on a comedy show in Los Angeles um, and we moved to Los Angeles and the show was canceled after three weeks. Um, and then we were unemployed for a very long time and it was really bad. Um, and we basically were going to give up. Um, and because we were running out of money, we were on unemployment and we couldn't find any, we couldn't break into comedy. We didn't have any comedy jobs. Um, and we, we weren't, uh, we weren't succeeding. I was basically going to, I decided to go work for the state department, which is like the diplomatic version of, you know, we have in, in the U S it's the department overseas stuff. So I applied for their exam. You have to take the foreign service exam. and they sent it to me and the exam was so hard. I had no idea it was going to be so hard. There was all sorts of complicated geopolitical stuff that I didn't know. And I was fairly well informed. And so I was like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's try writing one more sample script. <laughs> and so Josh and I decided to write one more sample script and people who had read our sample script up to that time were like, you know, these are fine, but they're not going to get you noticed. you got to write a script for a show that you love. And right around that time, a show called the Seinfeld Chronicles had come out. And it was it later became Seinfeld, but it was only on like four episodes. And we thought it was the best show on TV. And even though most people had not heard of it at that time, we decided to write a sample episode of the Seinfeld Chronicles. Um, and we wrote it, you know, because we did like that show. We wanted to make it really, really good, as good as the show was. And um, and we wrote it. We wrote a really, really good script that got a lot of attention. It got us an agent, the agent who had been kind of stringing us along loved it, immediately signed us, sent it out to everybody. And people agreed that it was great. And like, we got a whole bunch of meetings um, at all the big shows at that time. And we, including the Simpsons, the Simpsons, the guys at the Simpsons read it, even though one of them had not even heard of Sim Seinfeld at the time. Um, and so that was basically what happened. That was basically our big break, was writing that script. It was giving up, <sighs> admitting that our previous scripts were not so good, giving up, reaching the point of no return and saying, okay, fine, one more script. And so we wrote that one script and it turned out to be really good because it was for a show we liked and a show that we were able to capture the voice of. Um, and that basically, uh, they, the Simpsons guys liked it and they decided that they were going to give us a, a freelance episode. And they had a story that Conan O'Brien had made up uh, called Marge Gets a Job about Marge getting a job at the power plant, Mr. Burn falling in love with her. And we wrote that. They liked it. I don't think they loved it, but they liked it enough. Um, and around that time, we had had all these meetings. We were already going to get hired. Uh, we had already been offered a job on a show. I don't know if you guys know Murphy Brown, but there was a huge, hugely successful show in the 80s called Murphy Brown. And the creator of that had a new spinoff of that show called, not a spinoff, a, a new show called Love and War. So Josh and I had been hired to work on Love and War, and they were already in the process of getting us our computer. The thing is, we didn't know what do we know about romance. We're not romance writers. This show was a romance, and it was not like we, I was, we were very, very honored to be hired by this lady who created Murphy Brown. Dan English is her name. But we were, uh, we were just a little worried that this wasn't going to be the show that we were going to be able to write that well. And we knew The Simpsons was a show that we could write really well. And so we had our agent. Before we started at Love and War, we asked our agent, could you please just call the Simpsons and ask if they would ever consider hiring us? And he did. And they did. It, it was the biggest example of like, you got to make that call. You got to take that risk because just right around that time, they, uh, Jay Kogan and Wally Wolodarski had suddenly decided to leave the Simpsons. 
thereby leaving an office with two <laughs> two desks in it and a slot for two more writers. And they liked our script enough that they hired us. And that was kind of the beginning of that was the whole thing. There was a series of events that happened in that all in that one year period where it was just kind of things happened. We kept, you know, we wrote that script. We got that assignment. We asked our agent to make that call. We were just like, we were having strokes of good luck, but we were also, you know, we were also pushing it a little bit and saying, would you call and just ask if they would ever consider hiring us? And, and the fact that that worked was amazing. It was already a well-established show at this point. So was there quite a lot of pressure to live up to that sort of standard? Oh yeah. We didn't know what we were doing. Like we, we had never worked on a regular show on a regular sitcom. We'd only worked on those variety shows. And when we got hired, they made it give us the title title of story editors, which later we found out that's the lowest title. That's basically the second lowest title on the TV show. But we didn't even know what it was. And we were like, oh, my God, we're going to have to rewrite the scripts. We thought we were going to be the rewriting the scripts. And we didn't we literally didn't know what it was. And we were tossed into the room immediately. Like, there's no there's no like welcome to the show or like here's a tour let's explain what's going on you just start you're in the room they're like you get there and it's like you get a call say they're getting together and you start in the room like there's no <laughs> there's no introductory period and we were just thrown into the room with 10 of the greatest comedy writers of all time and it was extremely intimidating oh my god like i think the thing is the first couple of weeks you just kind of sit there and you listen to figure out what the rhythms of the room are and then gradually you start pitching things, you get the confidence enough to pitch stuff that goes in the script. And, and I remember, because I used to write down everything I got that went in, and many of the things were not really jokes, but were just kind of wording uh, uh, changes and stuff like that. Um, and then at that time, we also made friends with Conan. Conan had been hired. He was just hired a few months before us. He was one of the only guys that they'd hired since day one. And we were like the second guys that hired since day one. Um, Conan kind of showed us around, and we became very good friends with him. And uh, over time, I think, you know, after about four or five months, we started, we kind of rose to the level of everyone else in the room. We wrote another episode that went about Marge going to jail, which this, in the first draft was very well received. Um, and then uh, what happened, the strangest, another strange thing happened where everybody left. Like literally <laughs> the show, the staff, 90, 80-90% of the staff just left. They all got other jobs. They all got development deals. This was back when development deal was a big thing in Hollywood where you get it, they pay you just to make up your own show. Um, so they all left and it was only, and for a brief period, a period of about six to eight weeks, it was Conan, me and Josh, and Dan McGrath, who had just been hired like weeks before, were the only employees, were the only writers on the show. Um, and it was really weird. But it was incredibly, it was the funnest time probably we ever had there because there was nobody in charge and we were just making up episodes and working on them ourselves. Um, anyway, that's the end of that chapter, I think. Uh, you won three primetime Emmy Awards. So what was that like? Each one was a little different. Like, because some of the ones, the thing about the Emmy Awards is that a lot of it is incredibly fake. And like, you know, you see 10, you on The Simpsons, when you look at the credits on The Simpsons, there's like four, how many, 20 people that are producers, executive producers, supervisor producers. Okay, most of those are writers, just at different levels of writers, you know, more see how more see how much more seniority they have and how much they get paid. So when an M, when a show gets nominated for an Emmy, everybody with a title above producer is on the thing, right? Even though many of them never saw the never even saw the episode that won the Emmy, right? So in in, in the case of the first one we won, we had 
barely been involved in that episode at all because we were writing a script when that episode was mainly done. Um, and we were thrilled to have to have won the Emmy and to have our name on it. Um, but we um, we didn't really deserve anything for it. Then the second one we really deserved, which was that's the one of all of them, which is the one which is the one from the John Waters Homer's phobia episode, because Josh and I. It was obviously it was George's idea and Ron Howard wrote the script, but we kind of like, I don't know, we supervised. We rewrote that thing. We we it was impartially our idea and so forth. And it was like we we were instrumental to the success and the execution of Homer's phobia. So that's the one that when I have it, I'm like, this is the one that I truly deserve. Then the other one, the third one was another one like that first one where we were barely (laughs) even there when that episode was made. Um, But so I have one Emmy that I truly deserve. The other two are kind of fake. Um, And, uh, you know, but I have plenty of other, and there are many other things that I didn't get nominated for. Like Futurama won an Emmy for that Roswell episode, which um, both Josh and I spent a huge amount of time working out. But since we were only consulting producers, we were below the cutoff. So we didn't even get, we didn't get one for that. So it all kind of, you know, it works out somewhat. Yeah, I was actually looking up when I was doing your bio, I was trying to find that episode you're just talking about. I was a bit confused about what you did on it. So it's good to know because I could just not find you in the credits and then find you in other bits and pieces. I mean, we worked out a lot of the story. We didn't do any typing writing, but we worked out a lot of the story in the room uh, on that because I was a big Roswell buff. So we, you know, I don't wait, we definitely contributed. So after The Simpsons, you started creating some of your own shows as well. So Mission Hill, what gave you the idea to do that? You know, it was a Simpsons style show. Mission Hill, what gave us the idea was that on the Simpsons, on the Simpsons, there are no, they're almost, other than Otto, there are no characters between the ages of 12 and 30, literally. And so, uh, and Otto is not that fun. So we were like, let's do a show where almost all the characters are between the ages of 12 and 30. And so we came up, it's a Simpsons, Mission Hill's very Simpsons style show, except it takes place in a city. And it's about kind of young, hip urbanites. And the main characters are 17 and 24. So we get to deal with Simpsons-style universe. And then we have other, uh, you know, lots of supporting characters of various ages and ethnicities. But that was the idea for that show. Um, and the thing about it, it was, it was a, I still think it's one of the best things we ever did. Unfortunately, it was on the wrong network at the wrong time. And it didn't succeed. And it got canceled almost immediately. But then it had this happy ending where it was picked up by Adult Swim, Cartoon Network's Adult Swim in the U.S. And they basically ran our episodes over and over and over every night for like five years, generating this very large fan base around the world, which we still have today. Um, if you want to, if you're listening, you can watch it all on YouTube as well. Yeah, all the best versions of it are on YouTube. And we're actually working on trying to get a we're trying to pick the show up, trying to start the show again. And so we've been pitching it around to various networks and Whatever network, if one of them decides to buy it, they will get the rights to put. That's why it still hasn't been on a streaming service in all this time, because it's being saved for whichever network decides to buy buy the new Mission Hill. And the new Mission Hill, by the way, is the same as the old Mission Hill. It's just the second season of it. So it's uh, set in the same time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a period piece now. It wasn't a period piece then, but now it is set in 1999. So you as well, you've been uh, reviewing fast food. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that is not, does not pay any money. That is my hobby. And I do, I, I um, have for the past almost four years now been um, doing, it actually has, has gone well beyond fast food. Although most of my videos are still about fast food. If you check out anybody who's interested in this, go to my Instagram account, that Bill Oakley 
on Instagram. I'm also that on Twitter, but I don't, the fast food stuff's mainly on Instagram. So I do video reviews that are somewhat funny of fast food items. Um, and then I also, and on my Instagram story, uh, review all sorts of other types of food, fast uh, snack food, frozen food, stuff from all over the world. Cara, you've sent me some stuff from Australia, which I'm very excited to try that I have right here. I actually had that burger relish the other night. It was delicious. Um, I have been, um, and I have made, and by sheer force of will, I have made myself into somewhat of a celebrity in the food world. <laughs> and I have, um, I'm going to be on, uh, I'm already appearing on the Food That Built America on the History Channel, which was coincidentally my favorite show before I even got on it uh, in this third season. I'm going to be on Somebody Feed Phil. I already filmed that. Um, I have been, uh, Burger King used one of my videos in their commercials. Um, and I'm actually now writing a book proposal about this topic as well. So um, at, at some point, I hope that it begins to pay money and then I can do less of this TV writing thing, <laughs> which is a slog. Uh, and the T and the, um, you know, the being the making the videos and stuff is really fun, but it's very time consuming. So, you know, I'd rather be able to do a more time to that instead of having to chase down or having to also convince TV. Net. <laughs> it's not any, it's not any easier or more fun these days to get a network to buy your show than it was 20 years ago. Having to go pitch shows to people who don't understand them or want them is very annoying and has never been any, <laughs> never gets any, any more fun or easier unless you become one of those producers who just sell the stuff automatically. You know, if you have a huge hit like Dick Wolf or whatever, you know, that you could just get your show sold without having to go through this process then you're in good shape. But for, for the rest of us, you still have to go, even though there's so many places to sell shows these days, there's an equal number of people trying to sell stuff. So it's not like it's any easier than it was. Um, and it's not like they're more desperate for content because they're getting thousands more people coming through the doors with the content. Um, furthermore, it's a questionable value. Like this is one of the things that, that I always wonder, like, you know, there's lots of shows that Netflix has 40 new shows a week. M most of them you never even hear about. Like they get a little, they get eight hours of publicity from Netflix. And then people, they've already been, for they're already forgotten by the end of the week. And how many people saw them? Probably in many cases less than saw one of my videos on Instagram. So like, and, and those cost nothing. And, you know, I have whatever, some of them have 40,000 views. The Netflix show costs a million dollars and has less than 40,000 views. I mean, like at some point, like, you have to figure out like the money is obviously great that you get from Netflix, but in terms of like your show being well-known, my show, my Instagram videos are well-known, more well-known than uh, a third of the stuff that appears on Netflix. You know, that's the thing that, that has become this weird reality these days. I think the, um, the Instagram food review videos are AS ASMR. I think that's the, they're like relaxing. Yeah, people do yes. like them. There's yeah. a lot of people who find them really relaxing for some reason. Even the ones that I do that are really frantic. Um, and uh, but yeah, there's something about them that that I can't quite put my finger on. That people, especially younger people, like find them relaxing. Maybe it's just that they're seeing a middle-aged white man who's not furious about something because that's what all you ever see on TV <laughs> these days. Is is um, so uh, that could be it. But um, anyway. I, I enjoy doing those. It's a really fun hobby. Maybe someday it will start paying money and um, I will be able to do less having to sell <laughs> stuff to online services, streaming services.
you were giving advice to young writers who are trying to get into the uh, industry, what would be the number one thing you'd say? Here, this is the thing. It's not the same as it was. This is what's the weird thing. It's it's much different than it was when I was getting into the industry. Okay. When I was getting into writing, there were four TV channels and a, and a couple of cable channels, right? And there were basically like 80 shows on the air, 80 shows period on the air. So at, once you had broken into the universe of, you got your script read at a certain place or you've gotten hired at a certain place, you were in. Uh, you were in the TV writing business and then you go, you know, keep getting jobs, writers rooms and things like that for, for years, but it's not the same anymore. It's not the same. Like also because those shows all had 22 episodes a year. So you'd have a full-time job for as long as you wanted it in general, you know, as long as presuming you could deliver the goods. Okay. That's not the case anymore. Um, it is the case for a very small number of shows, which is like, are there mainly cop shows, drama shows on CBS, but every show, other show, they order six episodes of or eight episodes of you come in, the writers come in, they work for 10 weeks and then they're gone. And so like, it's not again. And then you have to go find another job and it happens three times a year. You know, it, even on shows that are successful, for instance, like disenchantment, you know, this is my worked on disenchantment with Josh, Matt Greening's show, like that show, we all worked for on the show for about uh, eight months. And then we were gone for two years, you know, and like people can't, survive being unemployed for two years they have to go find other stuff and that's the way that it works now so let me point it point this out you ha- i think that my this is all leading to an important point which is you have to be your own <laughs> you have to have a slightly more entrepreneurial approach to it than you did in the old days the old days it was a very clear process where you would write a funny spec script you get the script into the right hands then you would get a job then you'd be all set now, even after you have the job, you're not all set. You have to be, you have to have other things going on. Okay, now the second part of this is you don't necessarily need the script to break in. Lots of people have been hired these days on TV shows because they are famous for their funny Twitter feed or they're famous for their YouTube videos or things like that. And so you can do, you could do that. Now, ideally, you would have both. You would have your funny, your hilarious YouTube channel. And you would have a really great spec script as well. So that if somebody said, hey, do you have a script we're hiring for a show? You'd be prepared and you'd say that. So you'd have, you know, that would be the best thing. However, let me also say, if you had a really successful YouTube channel, why would you want someone else's job on Netflix? Because you're already making your own money. You're already making more money with more job security than you'd be have than you'd get from working in someone else's writer's room <laughs> on a show where you'd be where you know whatever that's the other thing like it's now possible to have a more successful career without having to even go through the process that people have had to go through years i mean not everybody and it's hard obviously to get a million or 10 million viewers on youtube but is it harder than breaking in and working your way up to executive producer of a TV show. I don't know that it is. If we finish with a game, is that okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This yes. one, this game, it, it's called, is this more of a weekend thing? <laughs> Very <laughs> um, good. So I'm going to name a food item and you have to tell me, is it a real food item or like a fast food item or is it an obscure reference from one of your shows? Okay. Okay. Good. The first one is the Colossus Burger. I think that's the reference to Dr. Colossus in Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 2 and not a real item. 
it's so that one's both i warmed us up with one where it was both but, um, <laughs> yeah it definitely was he's one of my favorites um i love that guy i wish he would come back um <laughs> okay the second one is called fist pump fries i think that's real that is from regular show season one episode three that's the band that they are uh, mordecai <laughs> oh wow okay yeah. number three the earthquake ham uh i think that's fake that's from yeah it's from close enough uh it's the food that's not in the deep freezer when emily's stressed okay <laughs> number four a baby chino that's real that's got to be real yeah that's real do you have those in america no i've never heard of it but it certainly sounds like something we'd have yeah it's like i a mean little... it's, i would say maybe they have it some places not that, they don't have it at starbucks to my knowledge it's it's basically just uh, frothy milk, and when a mum goes in, she orders herself a cappuccino, and she orders a cappuccino. Oh, I bet they do have that. Yeah, they probably have it. It started in Australia and New Zealand. So the next one is a, a thin stew made of fish, vegetables, prawns, coconut milk, and four kinds of rice called a Vietnamese stew. That's Principal Skinner. That's what Principal Skinner ate when he was a, a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Yeah, that's right. You're the first. I'm trying to work that recipe into every single podcast somewhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> a Griforo burger. A what? Gracoro burger. I don't. I don't. I don't know what. I think that's real. It I don't know real. what it is. Yeah, it's it's in Japan. Okay. Um, it is a patty consisted of a breadcrumb crust and stuffed with macaroni, shrimp, and white sauce. Oh wow, that sounds pretty good. And the last one, a bunning sausage sanger. That's from Australia. That's a real thing in Australia, right? Yes, I okay. believe you know that. Yeah. Because isn't that the one that you? I can never remember which one is the one that you get on election day. There's two different ones. There's one that you get on election day, and there's one that you get at the hardware store, and they might be the same thing. It's the hardware store, yeah. People go there. They don't even go into the hardware store. Like a lot of people just rock up just for the um, sausage at the front. That I got to try those someday. I, 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 I it sounds really good. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's it. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Um, thank you for joining us. And, um, yeah, I hope you uh, good luck with all your future uh, shows that you're working on. And your future. Oh, thank you very much. I hope this was informative. It was great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on a great episode of Great Comedic Minds. We'll be back next week, so be sure to tune in. Also, like, share, subscribe to the channel. And be sure to follow Carl Robertson on Instagram.